0: So I don't know about you, but I know that some of my fasting experiences have looked a bit similar to that. Um, yeah, if you don't know me, my name's Joel, and um, yeah, tonight I'm going to be sharing about fasting, um, what it is, why we do it, uh, what Jesus says about it, and the rewards and promises that God um, gives those who do it with the right heart. And so as I share, it's it really is my desire that Jesus would personally touch each one of us tonight and that we would leave more hungry for him, more encouraged to fast and for us. And so if you haven't been here the last couple of months, as Tim mentioned, he has been doing an awesome job on focusing on the importance of food and eating together. However, I'm here to tell you how good it is not to eat food together. And so my aim isn't to undo all the great work that Tim has done, but to complement and add to the deeper sense of community that has developed. And so hopefully by the end of tonight, we'll be able to see that not eating together is just as important and, and as powerful as eating together, and that there is a place for both in the Christian life. So aptly, I have named the sermon The Empty Table, The Empty Stomach, and The Full Life. So Ecclesiastes 2.24 says there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Similarly in 8.15 it says, so I commended pleasure for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and to be merry and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. So this is the wisest man in the world telling us that there is nothing better to do than to eat and drink and be merry. So why should we have to fast? From what I can see from scripture, scripture indicates at least 19 different circumstances where fasting was practiced both corporately and privately. So let's just have a quick look over those now. So for deliverance from prison, for seeking prophetic direction, when commissioning others into leadership, when in a place of captivity, When at war with our family, before going to war as a means of humbling ourselves when faced with imminent death, to seek God's protection for ourselves and others, for spiritual renewing, to express our longing for Jesus as bridegroom, as a lifestyle choice, to receive clear direction, to help make ministry decisions, to receive revelation for spiritual breakthrough, as an expression of mourning, as an expression of repentance, and for seeking restoration. All these are legitimate reasons and circumstances that call for fasting. Before I go any further, though, I want to really get practical and and quickly explain the four different types of fasts that we can do. There is a complete fast, a selective fast, a partial fast, and a soul fast. The complete fast pretty much sums up what it means, what it says. It's where we go without all food for anywhere between one to 40 days and only drink water and sometimes light juice. So Jesus did that, did this fast and he did it without water for 40 days in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil. And Moses did the same fast on top of Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments and so did Elijah. And many people in this day and age have actually completed 40 days, 40 day complete fast, both Christian and non-Christian. So it is kind of possible. I haven't done it and I don't plan on doing it soon. Um, But it may be on the cards. Um, So the second type of fast is called the selective fast. And this is where we only eat selected foods and exclude other types of foods. And this is modeled on the fast that Daniel did it says in Daniel 1:8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food and drink, and so he sought permission from the commander of the officials, "Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink." And so, although we don't have to do it in this particular way, the general idea is that we only eat selected foods for a, for a given period of time for the purpose of seeking after God through prayer. And the third type of fast is a partial fast or sometimes known as the Jewish fast. Now this fast involves from abstaining from all food for a portion of the day, usually between either sunrise or sunset or 6 a.m. and 3 p.m. Again, it is usually only for just for a specific number of days. And the final type of fast is called a soul fast. So this isn't specifically found in the Bible, but according to the heart behind fasting, which we'll look at in a minute, it is where we abstain from certain activities for the purpose of seeking God through prayer. Usually it involves abstaining from things like social media or Netflix or any kind of activity. In particular, those activities that we may somewhat be addicted to or tend to overconsume. So these are the four different types of fasts, and I just want to add a bit of a disclaimer here that if there is anyone here that has any kind of health issue, that could worsen and put their health at risk as a result from fasting from food. Um, I would encourage you not to participate in fasting from food unless under approved medical supervision. Um, yeah, so just be wise in the, in the way that you approach this. Um, and, and it's we don't become holy by fasting. And so I don't believe that um, yeah, anyone will miss out from the benefits of fasting if, you, if you're not able to do this, but it just might look a bit different for you. And so, yeah, so far, we've done a quick overview of the scriptures and explored the different circumstances and some of the reasons why people have fasted. We've quickly looked at how to fast, but why has God chosen this particular practice and what is so special about it? What does it do for us? What does it do for God? And why is going without food beneficial for anything? So to help give a bit of a foundation, um, the following statement attempts to define fasting a bit more clearly. And so fasting is the intentional starving of our soul or physical body, of temporal sources of comfort, sustenance, joy, satisfaction and pleasure for the purpose of seeking God through prayer and giving him greater opportunity to be those things for us to a greater measure in a way that is everlasting and eternal. It is also a response to our mourning for him and longing for his return. So it encompasses the idea that we intentionally empty ourselves and purposely position ourselves to receive to a greater measure in our hearts his eternal life, his eternal joy, his eternal love, and really experience what it means to find deep satisfaction in him and that we would be filled with the fullness of Christ. And so when you think about fasting, is it as normal as your regular prayer life? Is it as normal as your giving? And I want to propose that fasting is not just for the spiritual elite, It's not just for the weirdos or those within a cult, but for the everyday Christian in their everyday life for you and for me. So Matthew 6 contains what I like to call the three whens of the Christian life. Jesus says, when you give to the poor, do it this way. When you pray, do it this way. And when you fast, do it this way. So so there's no if about it. It's kind of assumed and implied that it's something that we will do. And Jesus talks about prayer and giving in the same way as he talks about fasting. So my question is, is it a normal part of our life? And if not, why not? For the remainder of the time that I have, I'm just going to go a bit deeper with two specific scriptures that reveal more the power and the purpose of fasting so that we might be all encouraged to practice it more. So I just want to have a look at the story of Israel in Judges 2. Judges 20, 18 to 28. And the reason why I've, I've chosen this scripture is because it demonstrates an association between fasting and victory. And we all face different kinds of battles um, in our lives. And I believe that fasting is directly linked to us walking the victorious lifestyle that God has for us. And because this scripture is like quite long, I'm not gonna read it, but instead just give a brief, really brief overview um, so basically, Israel was at war with their brothers, the Benjaminites. They asked God, who should go up first? And God said, Judah. So they obeyed, um, went up to fight, and they lost 22,000 men. So they went back to God, and they, and they said, God, well, do you want us to go up again? And he said, yes. So they went up again, and they lost 18,000 men. And so they came back again to God, and they asked God, shall we go up again? And he said, And he said, yes and then the that last time that they went it involved fasting and the day when they came to him that time he pronounced their victory and said that the day after they would um, defeat um, their enemies in the war and so that's kind of the story in a nutshell but looking a little bit deeper there's a few things that I want to illustrate I've got a little bit of a table because I like tables So there's three points that I wanna highlight. Um, One is that the more Israel turned to God and obeyed, the more their prayer life expression became more broken. And two, the more broken their prayer life became, the less casualties they lost at war. And three, it was only after they had fasted that God pronounced victory. And so as you can see, Israel's initial inquiry of God was just that a simple inquiry as to who should go to fight first. And as we can see, the reward for their prayers and obedience was the loss of 22,000 men. And then they returned to the Lord. But this time, their coming to him was a bit more intense and a bit more broken. This time they came in inquiring and weeping. And as a reward for their prayers and their obedience, they lost another 18,000 men. And so the third time they came back to God, it was with inquiring and weeping and sacrifices and fasting. And it was at this point, when their desperation was at its highest, compelling them to fast, that God decided then that he would pronounce victory for them over the sons of Benjamin. The next day, in accordance with this, they defeated their enemy and put to death 50,100 sons of Benjamin." And I want to point out that I I don't think that they were like, oh, no, we forgot to fast the first time we came, so let's put that into our prayer life so that God will give us victory. I don't think it was like that at all. The way that I see it, it it was more like we are desperate. We don't know what else to do. We are crying out to you, God. We are willing, but we are hurting. This is hard. We've lost men. What should we do next? Also, all of their inquiries weren't a plea that they would become victorious, but of simply asking that God would show the next step. In asking, listening, and obeying, step by step, the outcome of the battle sorted itself out. And we can also see that victory didn't come straight away. It required them to keep on turning up and asking and obeying no matter what the cost and no matter how broken they became. And sometimes God calls us to continue to confront circumstances that oppose the victory that He desires for us, so much so that in doing so, our expression of desperation is characterized by humility to fast. And so what if Israel had only inquired once and then left in bid because God didn't cause them to win? after their first prayer would they have come into that victory and there's a bit of a story in my life similar to this that I want to share that's kind of like that I mean I didn't go to war or anything um, but it yeah it was a battle and it was probably about a a few years ago um, when my wife at the time Candice we were living at my parents house and we were kind of only newly married and we were looking for a place to live and it was really good environment everyone kind of got along but it's it's never too good to live at your parents' house when you're married for too long. Um, and so we were looking for a house and um, there was this townhouse across the, the road from the North Lakes Lake that, that Candice just, it was her dream house that she wants to move in. And, there were, and, I, and I prayed about it and I didn't feel like we should. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well let's, let's apply for it and um, let's just see what happens. And so we applied for it, and we got it. And I was like, oh, man, God, why do you have to do that? And so I prayed, that, prayed, prayed about it again, and I still got a no. And so I said, I don't think we should we should do it. And she was very gracious, and, and she agreed. And so, yeah, we were still stuck at my parents' house. Um, and so another opportunity came, someone who we knew who lived, like, right on the border at Sandgate. Um, they were going away for a couple of months, and the, and they were like do you wanna live at our house for like 40 bucks a week? And I was like, like it was a really good deal. And so I prayed about it and felt that was God was like saying no. And um, again, Candice was very gracious and she she agreed to it. And we were still stuck at my parents' house. And also during this time, my dad was in a position where um, he was thinking about the idea of, of buying a house house um, for us that we would rent off him and then in order for us to save um, for a deposit when we at that time when we had we would be able to buy it for him at the same price that he bought it for which is just so gracious Um, and so we'd looked at other houses along the way and nothing really stood out Um, and so it got to a point um, sorry another important point Um, I was journeying through this with someone older than older than I was and when I was talking to them, they, they were sharing this story, and it's a fake story, and I've heard it before, but it's the story of this guy, he's, he's, he's stuck in a flood, and the waters are like up to his knees, and, so, and then he sees this guy um, come in a boat, and the guy on the boat says, the floods are coming, you, you're gonna die, so hop in my boat, I'm here to save you. And, he go, and the guy goes, no, sorry, God's gonna save me. So he didn't, he didn't jump in the boat. And then, so the waters keep on rising up, and this happens a few times, Um, Other boats come and say, jump in, the floods are coming, you're probably going to die. And and he keeps on going, no, no, God will save me. And then it gets to the stage where he's standing on the top of his house and the waters are like up to his chin, and then he sees this helicopter fly above him. The helicopter chucks down like a rope or a ladder or something, and they say, get in, get in, you're going to die. And he goes, no, I'm okay, God's going to save me. So this guy, it's not real, he ended up dying, and... He got, got to heaven and he was standing for God and he was like, God, why didn't you save me? And God said, I tried. I sent boat after boat after boat and I sent a helicopter and you still didn't get in that. And so related to my story, I, I saw all these good opportunities coming along, but I didn't wanna be like that guy that kept on saying no and just drowned. And so yeah, as part of that, my prayer to God at that time was like, well, God, I don't want to miss out on the helicopter. So, show me a helicopter wherever you want want me to live. And some of the places that we were at, some like small planes flew over, and I was like, Oh, God, that's similar to a helicopter. And <laughs> and and then it got to, it got to a point where I can remember so clearly that Candice was just like she had had enough, and she started crying. And when when your wife starts crying, it's not a good place for you to be in. And so at that point, I was just, like, so desperate. I'm like, God, I've tried to do the right thing. Just like the, the Israel, Israelites, they, they try to do the right thing of, of inquiring of God and saying yes. But I was at the point of desperation where I was like, okay, God, I'm going to fast. And um, so I decided to fast. I can remember it was a Sunday. And it was a horrible day. Like, it wasn't fun at all. And um, I got to the end of the fast, and God hadn't said said anything. I was just like, and that made me even more bitter because I thought that I was, you know, at least trying to seek him more, as much as I could. And so, yeah, that day, I just felt so defeated. And it seemed as though, defi- like it was just a waste of time um, seeking him in that way. And so because of that, I said, God, I don't-. and the funny thing was that that apartment at North Lakes was still available. Um, and so I said to God, look, I don't think that we should move in there, but I've got no, you've left me with no choice. Like I kind of put it back on him. Um, and I said, so we're gonna move in there. We're gonna apply anyway. And so Candice rang to apply the next day um, and a couple of hours before she did, it had already been approved. Um, someone else had already got it. And so I was kind of like a bit relieved that we, because I felt that it wasn't what we should do. But at the same time, I was still stuck in this situation of, yeah, still living at my parents' house. And, um, but that night, which was the day that after I fasted, I got a call from my dad and he said, real estate's given me a call. There's a house that hasn't come onto the market yet. And so let's go have a look at it. And so we went and had a look at it um, and it ticked all the boxes. And yeah, and when we both went there, there was a piece about it. and, And we thought, this is it, this is it. So this is the day after I fasted. And then I was—I can remember standing on the driveway talking to my mum and we were just talking about it. And then I hear this sound and a helicopter flies above our head. And that was like, that sealed the deal for me. And I can remember her saying, that's weird, isn't it? And and secretly, yeah, I knew what was happening. Um, So yeah, that's kind of a story similar to that. Um, It wasn't a formula that I'm not saying that there's a formula that every time we fast, you know, God's going to do something the next day or anything. But like, like the journey of the Israelites and my journey, God, through asking and just obeying, he led me on a, on, a, on a journey of just continually being more broken up until the point where I just had nowhere to go except to give this fasting thing a go. Um, yeah. And so in this story, it actually worked out to my advantage. But not all of my fasting experiences have turned out like that. Um, And not all have turned out with a good ending. So what do we do when our fasting and prayer don't bring into effect a a positive outcome in our circumstances like we are contending for? Does that mean it was all without meaning, that we poured ourselves out for nothing? Does it mean that it was without effect and so there's been other, other circumstances in my life that I've contended for for years that have involved prayer and fasting. And a, a couple of those, they didn't end up like I was contending for. They didn't end up like I had prayed for. And, and it, or they ended up the opposite. And, and, and yeah, and it's important, yeah, it's disappointment. We've gotta learn that, yeah, it's not a formula. And um, what, But what do we do in that place? And so I wanna encourage everyone who has specifically encountered this. The disappointment of praying and contending and fasting for a particular outcome, but experiencing the exact opposite. And I wanna encourage you to look at the bigger picture. Although that particular chapter in your life may seem like it's over, and although it may have seemed like you lost, the reality is that the story of your life is still being written. But there are still chapters of redemption and salvation and victory that God is still writing in your life. And God is not finished. And He is still working out the good things for those that love him. And secondly, we need to ask ourselves that what would it have been like if I hadn't have prayed, if I hadn't have fasted? And this we don't actually know. But looking back over the circumstances of my own life, I can see how that it probably could have worked out even more worse. And, or my heart could have been in a worse place than it is, or other, other people's hearts could have been in a worse place than it is. And so in wrestling this, apart from positive outcomes in our circumstances, which I will continue to contend for, I believe there is a higher purpose and reward that, that God gives to those who fast. And essentially, it's the reward of an awakened sense of the fullness of Christ in us. So to help illustrate this, I wanna look at uh, Matthew 914 to 15. Says then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So it's essentially it portrays the purpose of fasting is getting getting in touch with Cultivating, expressing our deep longing for Jesus, and mourning over His physical absence and longing for His second return. Additionally, it means it's a means of encountering His deep passion and longing for us with an intensity likened to that found in a marriage relationship. It helps Him to help us further realize that He is the prize, that He is indeed our reward and that he is the ultimate object of our affection to awaken our love sickness for him and to get in touch with our deepest desire to be with him wholly and completely and to know what it means to experience to find lasting satisfaction in him alone and this this scripture is the first scripture used by Jesus to reveal himself as the bridegroom of God. He was introducing a new paradigm for fasting. So it can be seen as an invitation to enter into a deeper reality of intimacy with Jesus as bridegroom. The apostles and disciples in Jesus' time experienced the intimacy of knowing him while he walked on earth. And when Jesus was taken away, they mourned and longed for his physical presence just in the same way we long for and mourn for the presence of loved ones that we may have lost. This longing for the nearness of Jesus in light of the absence of his physical presence is why we fast today. And we continue to fast in this way until he returns again. It is a response to the deep groan in our hearts for more of him, to be with him, to be near him, John Piper describes this love sickness this way. He says, The birthplace of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. In the summer of 1967, I'd been in love with Noel, who he was engaged to, for a whole year. If you had told me then that we would have to wait another year and a half to marry, I would have protested firmly. For us, it seemed the sooner the better. It was the summer before my senior year in college, and I was working as a water safety instructor at a Christian Athletic Camp in South Carolina. She was hundreds of miles away working as a waitress and never had I known an aching like this one. I'd been homesick before, but never like this. Every day I would write her a letter and talk about this longing. In the late morning, just before lunch, there would be a mail call. And when I heard my name and saw the lavender envelope, my appetite would be taken away. Or more accurately, my hunger for food was silenced by the hunger of my heart. And often, instead of eating lunch with the campers, I would take the letter to a quiet place in the woods and sit down on the leaves for a different kind of meal. It wasn't the real thing, but the color, the smell, the script, the message, and the signature were foretastes. And with them, week by week, I was strengthened in hope, and the reality just over the horizon was kept alive in my heart. But the story of my heart hunger to be with Noel could be misleading. It tells only half the story of Christian fasting. Half of Christian fasting is that our physical appetite is lost because our homesick- homesickness for God is so intense. The other half is that our homesickness for God is threatened because our physical appetites so intense. In the first half, appetite is lost. In the second half, appetite is resisted. In the first, we yield to the higher hunger. That is, in the second, we fight for the higher hunger. That isn't. And so Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of a superior satisfaction in God. It is also a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away and so as, as what John said as he suggests we don't need to wait until we feel desperate or hungry for God to fast in this way but it's something we can intentionally choose to do anytime and we can use it as a practice to keep our desire for him above everything else and so my question is are we hungry for him And I believe each of our hearts deeply hunger for him, whether we realize it or not. And the level of realization we have of this is to some extent determined by what we are filling our lives with. And just like our physical bodies have a limited daily capacity of what it can consume, so does our soul. And so just quickly, the book Book of Song of Solomon also helps give a picture of this love sickness and a bride's desire for her bridegroom. Song of Solomon 1, 2, 4 says, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, and your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil, therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you, and let us run together. And so the bride would have had to encounter the love and kisses of the bridegroom in order to know how good his love was, to boast about it, and to desire and to long for it more. And her desire is more is more indicated by her words in verse four, where it says, "Draw me after you, and let us run together." So she was essentially saying, "I want to be near you. I want to go wherever you go, and I want to be where you are." It was an all-sensory experience and she was physically touched by his kisses in a personal way. Verse three indicates that it appealed to her smell and her hearing, and it says, your oils have a pleasing fragrance and your name is like purified oil. The exchange of words between the bride and the bridegroom that followed were one of mutual affirmation shared by the two between the two lovers. And in the same way, the relationship that Jesus longs to have with his bride who is the church is one of continual exchange and affirmation of the love that we share together. In chapter two, verse five, the bride further expresses her desire saying, sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples because I am lovesick. And so the intensity of this lovesickness causes her to move from her place of comfort to seek after him even more. And this is evidenced in chapter 2.10, where there was an invitation from the bridegroom for the bride to arise and to come with him to be where he was. So instead of coming to her, there was a call for her to come to him. And she was compelled to further seek him because of the desire that she had for him, which was only gained by him reaching out and loving her in the first place. And so Jesus has already come to us and demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross. And as we encounter this love in our hearts, we continue to hear him calling us to come to him and follow him. And he continues to invite us to be where he is. And so the story in Song of Solomon goes on. And my question is, is the intensity of desire and longing that the bride had for her bridegroom in this story, our reality? Is the satisfaction she experienced in his love, the satisfaction that we have in Jesus' love for us? And I believe that it is the longing with this kind of intensity that Jesus wants to form in us through fasting. And it's not something that we can conjure up within ourselves but it's only the result of deeply encountering his love for us. And when we fast, we give him greater opportunity to consume us with his love. And so I just, as we finish, I just want to encourage everyone to do two things. One is make a decision to give fasting a go. And two, keep yourself encouraged in it by feeding yourself on the promises that God has for you in this. Um, the Father promises to reward us when we fast. Matthew six sixteen eighteen says that we should not fast to be noticed by men, but we should fast in secret. And our Father who is in secret will reward us for what is done in secret. And God rewards those who fast with a correct heart. Mike Bickle also provides insight into this when he says, throughout the history. People have often fasted with a wrong focus, seeking to earn God's favor and attention, but we can never manipulate God. We can embrace extreme self-debasements in our desire to prove our dedication to Him, but this is not what God is after. What He delights in is our obedience and our pursuit of intimacy with Him. And more important to Him than fasting is that we do His will. The Lord spoke through Samuel the prophet saying that it is better to obey God than to offer him a special sacrifice. And just further to this, James 8 gives us this promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What James is talking about here is that the reality for for all believers is that the spirit of God already dwells in us. And so in the sense of spiritual proximity, He is as close as he is ever gonna be. There is nothing more that we can do to have him more close. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, our spirit is already one with his spirit. And so it's not talking about that kind of nearness. What I believe is it's talking about a relational nearness. As we draw near to God in a relational sense, he will draw near to us in a relational sense. And a husband and wife can live in the same house, but they can be worlds apart relationally. God's spirit can dwell in our hearts, but we can be worlds apart from Him. And so, I just want to close with this scripture from Hebrews 10:22. It says, "Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And so we're just gonna take a moment now just to share in communion. And I don't know where you're at, whether you're hungry for him, whether you're not hungry for him, whether you need a breakthrough for God in a particular circumstance. I just wanna encourage you, just take this moment as we take the bread, not bread, the crackers and the wine, and as we remember him, just yeah, just cry out to Him, where you are, and yeah, and just meet with Him. I'm just going to quickly pray, and then um, yeah, in your own time, um, just come up and take communion. We'll do a song at the end, and if you have an offering, um, the offering bags are just on the uh, the tables as well. And so Jesus, we thank you f- for your love for us. We thank you that you made the first move and that you poured yourself out for us and that you died on the cross for us. And I just ask, Father, that you would just continue to awaken within each of our hearts a longing, a greater longing and a desire for you, that you would continue to reveal to us the extent of your passionate love towards us And that as we encounter you, as your love continues to encounter our hearts, that we would just continue to long with greater intensity for you to be where you are for your return. And that we would just experience the nearness of having you close in a relational sense. And so empower us to do that. And we're just so thankful, Father, and for anyone that, is, that needs a breakthrough, Father, in their life, I just ask that as they continue to pour themselves out to you, that you would come and that you would satisfy those longings and desires in their heart and that that breakthrough would come.